Hello everyone and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, cooperation, non-domination in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This is another one of those very, very exciting episodes where I bring in someone whose work I had admired and who I wanted to have on the show before the show even existed. That's Corey Robin. Um, Corey is not only the best thinker about the right-wing movement ever in history, as far as I'm concerned. He is also the best thinker about American politics today. So Corey and I are going to talk about the state of democracy today, the state of American democracy, and the resonances between anarchism and radical democracy, as well as some of the key disagreements between what, what I would call anarchism and what Corey calls radical democracy. And thrillingly, uh, both of us agree, crucially, with a famous quote by Karl Rove, which has been used as the enemy of the left for a long time. Uh, it blew me away when Corey brought this quote up, and I could not believe even more that he and I agreed on the value of the Karl Rove quote. So you'll just have to listen to hear that after the music. Okay, hello. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. I'm joined today with by Corey Robin, who is one of the thinkers who has most influenced me and most shaped me as I have been doing this project on what uh, what I am calling anarchism, but could be called by many other names, a sort of left-wing project of solidarity, of mutual aid, of cooperation. Sometimes it's called democracy, sometimes not, depending on whether you think democracy requires voting and the sovereignty of the people. That's not what I'm interested in. Sometimes that's called democracy. And I, I had Corey here today who has written wonderfully on the conservative movement um, and all sorts of things about politics and the left wing, as well as the right wing in the United States, because I wanted to talk to him about the, the crisis in democracy that we've been having ever since January 6th. Because from my perspective, the crisis in democracy started, oh, I don't know, 1789 or so. And the, the, the January 6th moment was less about the crisis in democracy and more about fighting over the, the pageantry of the state and the power of the federal government and all these things that I consider pretty anti-democratic. So Corey, thank you so much for, for coming on to discuss these issues with me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here to chat. So I thought we might just sort of start with with January 6th um, and, and we can get onto the uh, Electoral College and the Supreme Court and everything. There's this sense. I mean, I have this sense that since January 6th, there's been this united belief in democracy. At least you would think that if you're reading the New York Times pages or the Atlantic or whatever, democracy to me is not worth a damn if it's the kind of democracy that can permit institutions like the Supreme Court to make the kind of decisions the Supreme Court makes. And so the first thing is like, I just want to talk about what what the American political system is and mm -hmm. can, can it or should it be called a democracy? My answer already, right, is is no. But I thought I would hear your your answer. Yeah. 
Well, I, I mean, I think even before January 6th, I think you have to, I try to take the, the long view of this. I think what democracy is and whether the United States is a democracy, I guess the first thing I would just say is, is that it, that's a, a changing animal over time. Um, uh, you know, in the 19th century, in fact, democracy was associated with the Democratic Party and they, they called themselves, in fact, mm -hmm. the democracy. And that tells you something already, which is that democracy wasn't just a state institution, but was a political party. It was a, and not just a political party, it was a mass political party and a mass political project. And I think already you can see in that something that's very, very different from, I think, how we think about democracy today. Today, we think about democracy as something we, quote unquote, have, uh, you know, our democracy, which is one of these phrases that uh, rankles me uh, a lot uh, because it's acting like it's some kind of common possession and it's just something that you have in the way that you have a pencil in your hand. And I don't think that's really the way the major thinkers of democracy ever thought about democracy at all. I mean, I just gave you just one example uh, from the 19th century, but a lot of our most robust democratic theorists John Dewey, who I think you had a, a, a program on, not re, you know, not recently. I mean, recently, excuse me. Um, didn't think of democracy, you know, in in those terms, but thought of it very much as a process, and not just as a when I say process, not a set of procedures, uh, but an activity, a practice, something that people had to do, a set of tasks and a set of shared tasks that were not immediately obvious. Now, this is all quite abstract, but, you know, we can be very concrete about this. There have been democratizing projects in the United States um, that are both state-centered, so getting the vote, the right to vote for African-Americans or women, that was a democratizing project. There have been other democratizing projects that are also state-centered. Um, the 17th, I always get the 17th, 16th Amendment, which was to say for popular election of the Senate. Um, that was a democratizing project. Uh, but then there are democratizing projects that are quite outside the sense uh, the state, democratizing the workplace, um, which was a big struggle for labor unions, continues to be democratizing the family. Um, and so I, when I, if you ask me what is democracy, I think it is a, a, a project. It is a collective project. It is not something you ever reach. It's not an end state. Uh, but is always um, a kind of task that has to be undertaken because, because um, there are always going to be groups of people who, rather than sharing power, um, seek to uh, amass it and monopolize it and to use it to dictate to other people what it is they have to do, whether it is in the realm of the state, whether it is in the workplace, whether it's in the family. And so that constant struggle, never won, never complete, changing in its definition, that to me is a democracy. So when people say for January 6th, you know, we, you know, we lost our democracy because uh, Mike Pence was threatened, um, you know, a, a man who could in no way, shape, or form. You know, the day prior, nobody would ever said that Mike Pence was the symbol of democracy, and yet suddenly he becomes that. Uh, you know, I, I think it's. I, I think we could be uh, 
we could have a little bit more candor about what really was a threat on that day and what's really not a threat on that day. Um, and if we're talking about what we really mean is democracy is a kind of robust set of uh, practices and popular institutions, I think it's pretty clear that the United States has been undemocratic for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, there's, I have a lot of thoughts about January 6th. This is, these are conversations I have had with students, although not publicly, but one of the things I like to do uh, is imagine if January 6th had been a bunch of um, anarchists and, and trade unionists and Black Lives Matters protesters protesting the election of Donald Trump. I assume yeah. that the pages of the New York Times would have been filled with odes to our democracy. These <laughs> people these people crashed to January 6th. And Corey, there was violence. But there's always violence with a mass march. And we cannot blame most people who were there for the violence of a few. I mean, I, I've seen like side-by-side -side headlines that were like, mm -hmm. Black Lives Matters protests were mostly peaceful next mm -hmm. to, you know, violence was done by at least 17 people at January 6th or something like that. And this just seems to me, uh, and just ignoring the crucial issue, which is not, you know, what do these people want, but what is the process? I'm sorry, go, go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I, and I think this is, again, a, a more general problem that I've noticed, you know, for quite some time. I, I'll give you a, a different example of this, because I think it was, a, it was controversial at the time, but it no longer is. So you'll recall in the early years of the Trump administration, there was a whole discourse around norm erosion, um, and that the real threat or one of the threats of the Trump administration and Trumpism was that they were eroding norms, everything from presidential candidates releasing their taxes um, to norms around uh, the use of the filibuster, um, uh, you know, not hard and fast rules that are written down in, the, in a text somewhere, but shared understandings. And I said at the time, you know, very um, specifically that this was a very dangerous, um, way to think about the problem of Trumpism. Because, of course, democracy itself is a process of norm erosion. Um, the, the embeddedment of slavery in the understanding of the Constitution, for instance, that was a norm. Um, some of it was a rule, there's lines in the text, but it was also a shared understanding of both political parties up until the 1850s. That was a norm and it had to be shattered uh, in, in, and, and not because just because slavery was wrong, but if you wanted democracy, if you wanted democracy, that no, norm had to not only be eroded, it had to be destroyed. And I, I raised that issue because I think um, like the case of violence on January 6th, people tend to make much, much more universal claims about what they think the wrong is at a given moment that if they took two seconds to think about, they would not really be able to uh, sustain that universal claim. Um, and so uh, I, 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 we, and we've been in this position, I would say, for, for quite some time, um, you know, with the Bush administration, um, there was a famous uh, quote from, uh, oh God, what was his name? His, his right-hand dude. Um, George W. Bush, I can't Rose? remember his name. Yeah, Carl Rove, of course. With, uh, you turn, you get over 50 and these names just start falling out of your head. Uh, Carl Rove 
gave a famous interview in Esquire magazine where, you know, he said, we are, um, he had a, you know, we're empire builders and that was that. But he also said, you know, we imagine a world essentially that is not, and we create it in that image. And people were horrified. Well, of course, Bobby Kennedy said a version of the same thing <laughs> in the 1960s. And it's, I, and I, I don't want to call this hypocrisy. I think it's something worse than hypocrisy, which is in the name of fighting an immediate problem or an immediate enemy, you end up declaring principles that um, shackle you yourself, that, that limit your own possibility. Um, and then it leaves you in a very uncomfortable position of having to either forswear the principles the next day, which just generates <laughs> cynicism, or you honor the principles, uh, which you might want to have questioned in, 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 in the criticism. So this is just, um, and if, sorry, and if I were to push this even further uh, to, to, to get to, I think, the, some of the issues you care about most, it does show you that there's not a real democratic culture among particularly elite and not so elite commentators. And by that, I mean, you know, in a democratic culture, reason giving, persuasive argument, um, establishing principles, that's not a mug's game. That's something that you painstakingly build up. So for instance, the abolitionist movement, you know, they couldn't just come out and proclaim uh, no, no property in man. They had to give a set of reasons for it. And, in, and, they, and if they hoped to be at all uh, a, a power, they had to be persuasive reasons. And you know, if they're persuasive reasons, you have to live by them. And I think so persuasion and reason giving are very much connected to broadening democratic cultures. And if people instead just declare principles that they kind of know the next morning they're going to jump because it's not, I mean, that's what, you know, Carville does. That's what hacks do. That's not what people who are building democratic movements do. So I think it tells you something about the real democratic decay uh, of people that that concern is just not even on the table. Oh, Corey, this is fantastic. I, I had kind of forgotten about that row of quote, and but now I will admit, for the first time, that I completely agreed with you and and with that quote. Like the sense of like we're building an empire—that's a horrible thing to build. But he could have been quoting William James or John Dewey. That was a pragmatist right. claim. We're going to imagine right. a world. We're going to make that world. We're not going to accept the world as it is right. because who wants to accept the world as it is? And I have been horrified by the valorization of, of, you know, truth. So we live in a yeah. post world, a post truth world. So what yeah. do we need? Capital T truth. There are eternal verities. Um, what's the book? I think it's called on tyranny. Timothy Snyder is that, yeah. and my wife got me that book because she knows I hate tyranny. Um, hmm. And I read it. And the basic claim of the book is there is a stable reality and what makes you an autocrat is to not believe in that stable reality, but to believe, right. believe in your own reality and to make that reality true. And right. to me, that's what, that, that is the project, is right. to believe in our own reality and to make it true. Right. And, yeah. you, and people are dismissive now. I mean, now it's very popular to be dismissive of postmodernism because right. Trump was post Trump was not postmodern. Trump right. was just an asshole who wanted to live in a world that was very kind to him and didn't mm -hmm. care what got in the way i mean that's right and, and you can there's so many ways to attack that without defending something called 
truth or democracy that was enshrined in 1789 or or any of those things and i yeah i call it anarchism or pragmatism and that's the that's the project i right. i feel like and rove can use that project and trumpists can do mass rallies that descend into violence it doesn't mean we need to stop having mass rallies um dave Zirin, uh, uh sorry go ahead no you go ahead so Dave Zirin, uh, who was on this show, he writes about sports and politics. You know, he he has this joke where he says, you know, blue lives matter, except for the Capitol Police, which I, you know, mm -hmm. I think is a good joke talking about principles. Mm -hmm. But I right. like to do that joke in reverse, right? right. Defund the police, except right. whoever is guarding Nancy Pelosi. Nancy <laughs> Pelosi needs paramilitary people with machine guns, and so this is a principle, precisely as you say that people are going to declare as a firm eternal principle simply because it will help them win the argument today. And I have, I have no time for it at all, just like you. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you were bringing up the, the truth issue because, you know, there is also a political theorist, you know, who I return to a lot is Hannah Arendt, who really uh, I have, you know, ambivalence about for a number of reasons. But one of the things, you know, she really tackled this, the question of truth and politics. At various points, she tackled it first in the context of totalitarianism, where I think some of what she wrote was less than helpful. But in the 1960s, she wrote a series of essays that you might know on lying in politics and truth in politics. Mm -hmm. And they were inspired both by the uh, Johnson administration, the Pentagon Papers, and then the Nixon administration. And what 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 strikes me about that, um, those set of essays, and, and they were popular essays, you know, they were not just written for other scholars, they were written in the New Yorker and elsewhere. But she really was able to hold something in tension um, that, that there is an element of politics that um, is about, that, that insists upon factual truth, not because of some moral principle or fidelity to the world as it is, but because there are constraints in the world that one any real political actor has to deal with. Um, and anybody who's been involved in any kind of political movement, I don't care of the left or the right, that 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 doesn't deal with like facts as um, as as just parts of the of the world, the, the the boulders and the and the and the trees. Like, you know, I'm referring to natural things, but there are political facts. That's true, but that 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 there is um, the reason liars in politics are nervous so much is that um, there is a part of politics that is part uh, that the liar trades in, which is imagining an alternative reality that is not true. And then through speech, trying to make it true uh, as a first step towards making, turning it into a fact. And she held these ideas in tension without this kind of silly, you know, we stand for truth, we stand for science, we stand for facts, bullshit that you hear all the time um, and that is, yeah, I mean, it's just, um, I mean, it's silly and it's, and it's foolish, but it's, it, it, and it's, it's wrong, actually. It's just very, very wrong. That's just not, um, you know, if you're trying to, and it gets back to this issue of rules and norms, you know, we're trying to change the rules and norms of things and we're trying to change facts. Um, and if part of that process involves imagining a world in which those facts are at least suspended, if not gone. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and I would say to go back to science and truth, these are things that are that are created, or if you want to be a little less radical, that are learned or discovered through democratic processes, through people working together collectively. That's why we have peer review. That's why we do right. not have in this country a scientific academy that declares what is true and what is not true. Right. The, the, the facts have to be part of the democratic process and the yeah. two things feed into one another. And that's why, yeah. you know, but then, and this is, you know, this is where Dewey can come in. That means it's about a community. Right. And there's all sorts of ways that we are failing to do that right now. For one thing, we believe that this country of almost 400 million people is a community and it, it, it clearly, it clearly isn't in any in any effective way. So that's a whole separate conversation about confederation versus right. unification. Um, but the other thing is, I mean, I was just interviewing scientists uh, yesterday. The scientific community is a community and their role right now is to, with something like, uh, you know, COVID or global warming, to find the facts and, and give them to us. And then their role ends and sort of our role as as the members of the community also never even gets started because then the politicians are supposed to act on those facts. And then I guess three years from now, we can vote those politicians out right. without ever having access to A, the, the facts in themselves, or B, the process that creates the facts, or C, the process of making political choices. And right. all of these processes are just meant to be delivered to us right. as, you know, as a product, here's the product. There was yeah. a science community, then there was a political community, and here you get a law. And if you don't like it, the election is 18 months away. And that's right. not, that's another blow against democracy. We need scientific democracy as well, clearly. So this is something I think about and struggle with. And here I might probably take a slightly different um, point of view than you. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll try to sort of set out why and and um, because while on the one hand, I, I very much see the attractiveness of what you're talking about and, and how it, and there is a, and there's a long tradition of seeing a kind of democratization of knowledge and being involved, you know, not just having uh, democracy be something that you do at the very end and, you know, check. Um, however, uh, you know, I, and I'm trying to remember where this first began, this, sort of suspicion that I had is that there's a way in which a lot of neoliberal discourse is parasitic on the point of view that you just set out. And I, I see this, yeah. for instance, I'll, I'll just give it to you very cleanly as a parent in the New York City public school system, where I am expected to become uh, kind of an educational, uh, an informed consumer. Now, in my ideal, I pay my taxes, and my kid goes to a school like other kids, and there are good teachers who are well-paid, who um, know what they're doing and are dedicated to their craft and are compensated and given the appropriate status. And obviously there's gonna be conflict. I don't imagine you know, this be a pristine thing, but what I see happening is uh, a kind of colonization of my time and my mind and my energy where I am forced to become a kind of co-educator and people use this language. And I am an educator, I'm a professor, I teach, but I don't want to be 
a co-educator of my child. Like, A, I don't think it's good for my kid. They're 14. They want some independence from their parent. And B, I don't want to have to do the, be involved in all this research, this level of research that's, you know, on the order of writing a dissertation. Just have, and, and it goes for healthcare and health insurance. And we see a whole bunch of areas where, and I, and I bring this up because I, 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 some friends of mine who we discuss this a lot, you know, and I, I'm attracted, I, my version is radical democracy. Uh, I wouldn't call it anarchism, but I do think the both of those formations have this problem, which is that certain things you want settled by other people and you want other people to take care of it so that you can get on with the things that matter to you most in life. Um, and, and, and COVID is another example where I felt like, you know, God damn it. I don't want to have to read every goddamn study about whether this, that, the other, I, I'm not equipped to read that stuff. Just, I'd like to have a public health agency that I, you know, I know science is not completely apolitical, but that I can trust that will make the decisions. And, and then I can make, you know, my life. And so I, I do, uh, I, I wonder how people of your, you know, sort of anarchistic persuasion, um, and it's a question also for myself, you know, as a more radical Democrat, how we deal with this, because there's just, there is a part of modern life that's extraordinarily complicated. And I want something settled and taken care of by the people who are best able to do that. And that opens me up to a whole host of problems. I, I get it. But I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't see a way out of that, that, that conundrum. Yeah. Um, look, this is a, this is, for me, this is the issue that comes up over and over again. Um, I, 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 <laughs> I can't give you a good answer that's going to solve this problem. It's clearly untenable right now. Um, it, but, but the, my start of an answer goes something like this. I'm, I'm with you. I was at steam night at my child's kindergarten last night, which um, there was no art. There was barely any STEM. The main thing that happened was we bought ice cream and it was $7 for a cone of ice cream, which I didn't want to, to spend. I'm sure in Brooklyn, cones of ice cream have been $14 for a long time, but the $7 cone was... <laughs> Seven sounds, sounds like a bargain, but yeah, go on. <laughs> and um, I just thought, I don't want to be a, a a, a part of this. Um, I just want the professionals to do their job. But the thing is, Corey, I I live in Chapel Hill. I I am very, I guess I'll say progressive. That's the language. I mean, I I consider myself sometimes a progressive and sometimes an an enemy of that sort of technocracy that is associated with mm -hmm. progressivism. The teachers are progressive. The school is multicultural. I'm I'm happy with it, and I do trust those people. But I have friends and neighbors who do not trust those people and who consider this an open question, whether yeah. the school is doing a good job, whether the right. experts can be trusted. And I can tell you lots of educational experts cannot be trusted, no matter how right. good their hearts are. They're filled right. with idiots and right. mindless bureaucrats. And right now, as near as I can tell, the progressive answer is when this problem is raised is sit down, shut up, the truth yeah. is true and the teachers know the truth and it does come down to trust so let me give you the even bigger example for me you and i believe that joe biden won the presidential election in 2020 
but I can't prove that to anyone. Like I wasn't there. People say like, oh, you know, it was certified. Like, do you really think all of these people were lying? All of these, you know, vote counting people? I do not think they were lying. But then the next sentence is, that's why we need to keep our people counting the votes. Because if we let their people counting the votes, they're going to be lying. Like, don't you see that you are literally just saying, I trust our people and I want our people to stay in charge. And then the anarchist complaint is, and if you disagree loudly enough, our people will put you in jail and that's fine because because we are in charge and we are right and so while i'm sympathetic to that claim it seems to i'm sympathetic to your position as well and that's the world i want to live in but that's not the world i want to live in when the school is run by different people and i don't want to declare the principle the teachers know what they're doing right because if i were in a different county i would not feel that way I don't have yeah. an answer to a solution, except that there must be a more general acceptance of democratic processes in tons yeah. of tons of areas. Sorry, I talked a lot. I'll let you. Respond. No, 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 no. I I agree, and you know, again, this is what democracy is: is is an ongoing experiment in deciding, frankly, what questions are up for grabs and which are settled, and and what's settled is never permanently settled. Uh, it's you know, it's it's always potentially open, and you know that's what democratic and counter democratic movements do. Is they, you know, so like, so at that level, I I, I agree. However, um, you know, this country has, you know, what you're describing is just grappling with pluralism and and difference, and you know, this country has had that forever, and there's nothing new about that. I do think that. Um, there's something that has developed that's new um, that isn't simply an argument about, you know, the curriculum and, and all the rest of it, which again, we've been, you know, that goes back to the 19th century. Um, but the idea of kind of being a co-educator and, you know, or, or being an informed consumer, you know, of your, of your health, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting because I think, you know, there was a there's a part of that, like in the 60s and 70s, for like the feminist movement, they had to they really had to challenge the sort of expert um, uh, domain over uh, health, women's health, you know, uh, and that was extraordinarily important. Um, you know, and then it's but then seeing how that process then devolved into this, you know, you're going to be, you know, your co-navigator on your journey to being cured from cancer or something like that. And uh, I don't know, you know, I just, um, I, I think to myself, you know, I have a PhD, my wife and I, we have time on our hands to deal with all of this. There are people, you know, who are poor, don't have that kind of time. I mean, God only knows how they figure out what the hell these documents mean half the time. I can't figure it out. And so anyway, I just, um, I do think, and I, I really do believe like this is, this is a, a pretty important task because um, I think this colonization of time for ordinary goods, public health, education, transportation, um, uh, in a way, I mean, this really was the neoliberal project, um, you know, Hayek in particular, what, what someone like Hayek, Friedrich von Hayek, for your listeners, I'm sure you know who he is, an economist, philosopher, 
associated with the right. Really, I mean, and I recommend people read him because I think he was extraordinarily thoughtful about these questions. He's also a great writer, which I don't say about many people yeah. who write about economics. Yeah, very clear, uh, very, and, and really thought about economics as a human science, not as a, you know, branch of the physical sciences, but really as, as you know, kind of questions, raising basic questions of philosophy and politics and justice. Um, and, you know, what Hayek would say to someone like me is, you know, you're presuming that, in some ways, what you, what you just said, that, you know, you're presuming that something like health, education, that these are settled questions that have a simple answer, but the, and, that, and, and that their value in the hierarchy of values is also set. Uh, but the truth is we live in a pluralistic society. We aren't in agreement about that. Um, and that's what uh, a good society would do is, is, is to allow people to make those choices. And so, you know, this sort of uh, this fantastic monster that we live with today um, didn't happen just by accident. Um, this, this was the dream is, you know, get people to really, really, you know, be like, you know, the same level of time and energy you put into buying your new car or whatever it may be, you put into all this other stuff. Um, you know, and so then we live in a world where you're spending all your time, you know, figuring, <laughs> figuring out where your kid's going to, you know, get an education. Okay. Uh, I mean, I want to say, I think you and I are in, in pretty much complete ag agreement on this. I mean, it... I mean, this is one of the questions that gets to like things like neoliberalism and its connection to people like Foucault. Like, there's ways in which neoliberalism can sound liberatory. It can definitely sound yeah. liberatory when Barack Obama is delivering the speech right. on on neoliberalism. The I would, I mean, maybe this is all I need to say. Although we have a lot more to talk about this if we want to keep going. I currently view the quote left wing or quote progressive answer to the problem of pluralism is there's no such thing as pluralism. Science is real. Teachers are good. Shut the fuck up. That, mm -hmm. I, I do not view that as an answer that is palatable to my understanding of democracy or anarchism or truth as yeah. a process. Right. I don't have a really great answer, but I know that you know and this is why you see people i think on the left wing fall in love with people like hayek and end up kind of right wing adjacent right. eventually right. I'm, I'm not gonna do that Corey. i promise i promise i promise <laughs> i won't but i mean you see it happen and it's because they've been told too many times that uh questions that they consider open are settled and anyone right. questioning is doing it in the name of post-truth or right. or right. whatever and so i'm disgusted by my by my you know fellow travelers who mm -hmm. have the sign that says science is real as if right. as if that's going to solve the problem of pluralism in american society you know it's interesting that you just the way you framed that you just i was dealing with some stuff from plato and there's actually i just of course now i can't find it but there's a line in book eight of the republic where he says that basically what, what, what distinguishes democracy, I mean, he's a, Plato hates de democracy. He's yes, if, not, you, he's if you don't know, Plato hates democracy. Hmm. Plato believes in capital T, truth, no pluralism, no process, except maybe there's a little bit of process for his f philosopher kings. Um, 
but what he says about there's just a quick line of course now i can't find it i can never find what i'm looking for but anyway it's to the effect that uh, democracy is really the place where there are a multiple definitions of the good and multiple uh types of people and you know for, for plato this is appalling uh, because what the city is is a community of the good united by a single uh, sense of the good um, and you know a hierarchy of good um, but it's it's a it was it just for some reason sort of newly struck me um, that 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 idea that um, it, of, of just how that plurality is what distinguishes democracy from, you know, an aristocracy, you know, all these other things. And, you know, I don't know what I think about that, but uh, it is interesting um, that a lot of the people, you know, on the left, you know, that's, um, they have, you know, I don't want to say they're anti-pluralist because I think they have a certain kind of plurality that they are um, interested in, um, but not, you know, not others. So anyway, yeah, so. I would say the next thing is you want to talk about co-opting by neoliberalism. This is another one of my great enemies is, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We yeah. must embrace pluralism, which means black billionaires and queer CEOs. Like that is the kind of pluralism that I view this, I would say, authoritarian or reactionary view is. I mean, I I do view these people as as reactionary and when the um when the right wingers talk about woke capital i don't really right. know what to say because i do i i'm against yeah. i'm against capital and i'm for racial justice but i often agree with the complaint that the right wingers make about this like well you can't complain about us anymore because we have a black right wing ceo like oh great right. that's that's not pluralism in yeah. any way that is worthy of the name right. i I think, but so many, I mean, so many people on the left seem to have settled on that as, and it's just another form of elite uh, mm -hmm. empowerment. And I would, I would say reactionary. I know I'm talking to the yeah. expert on reaction here. I mean, you know, my hope is, is that um, that understanding of pluralism and diversity sort of, uh, not that it will generate its own contradictions and collapse. I don't believe that, but that, I think a, a, a more politically astute left and where I've seen this done well, particularly in the labor movement would say, you know, uh, okay, you value black women, you value um, the voices of brown people. So here are a group of workers who are black women and brown and in this institution that's not just about what they see on television and not just the words that are used on a Senate floor or in a tweet, but living a good part of their lives. Uh, and that the experiences that they have are, uh, well, two things. One is that the racism and sexism and hetero uh, homophobia that one sees in society is telescoped and it's it's like a, a laser beam in the workplace uh and they miss out on job opportunities they miss out their wages are low their health outcomes are low um, and if you really do care about that these are the things that you have to support 
And if you don't, you don't actually care about black women. You don't really care. And then to say to other people that, you know, these are also things that will benefit you as well, you know, uh, healthcare for all and so forth. So, you know, I, I tend to be a little bit more tolerant of, uh, uh, although I get irritated by a lot of the, the kinds of things you're talking about because they seem so cynical. But I, I also believe that that kind of cynical, that there's a way of pushing that, the putting, pushing, putting the test to that cynicism. Um, and the truth of the, I mean, the truth of the matter is the working class is multiracial. It is multicultural. It is immigrant. I mean, all this stuff that's happening in Amazon warehouses and you've been following it at uh, Starbucks, um, you know, which don't forget, like these were the corporations that were held up as the you know, progressive capitalism. Here's, here's right? woke capital right here. And they are exactly. being, they are being unionized against. Um, yeah. I, Look, this is just I'm I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled right. about these these labor organizations. They seem to have come precisely from the opposite place that yeah. diversity, equity, and inclusion has come from. Yeah. Though if if there is real commitment, Corey, in these corporations to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they have just been led astray by consultants and their elite bubble that the solution is to hire a uh, a chief diversity officer, um, yeah. then, then yes, this is great. And we can show them, no, no, actually, I mean, you can keep the chief diversity officer, although I, I certainly believe in fewer people in the C-suite. So right. maybe, maybe right. get rid of them, but maybe get rid of the COO also and right. that sort of thing. Um, sure, I don't believe that there's a genuine commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Or as one of my neighbors put it, you know, the people around here are left wing. And they believe in diversity, but they will not accept you if you are poor, right? right like there's right. The, only the elite forms of quote diversity are are allowed. Yeah. I, I also this comes from being in a series of schools that were incredibly difficult to get into, teaching at them yeah. and being lectured at the beginning of the year by one group of people lauding how high our test scores were. And the next mm -hmm. group of people come in and say, We've got to figure out a way to be more inclusive. So right, my, right. my answer is stop excluding most people who, right. who apply. So I, that's why right. I'm so cynical about inclusion because yeah. when elite institutions, they are naturally exclusive. That is the whole point of them. And then yeah. they talk about inclusion and that is, I, I, I've, I've lost my taste for that language completely for that reason. Well, again, and, and, and that democracy is not, is not, um, Inclusion implies that, you know, we're here, a group of us, and then we're going to, you know, bring in people. And that's not how democracy works. I mean, that's a, it's actually a top down understanding of democracy. Democracy is something that is driven by the people who are the objects of domination, who are the subjects of domination, um, liberating themselves. And I think this is, you know, another really, really important, um, issue that the left has a hard time around, which, you know, many times a lot of the left today is um, they're do-gooders and they're moralists in a very kind of 19th century uh, vein. And the most important aspect of emancipation and democracy, again, going back, um, are the actions of the people themselves, you know, in the act of liberating themselves. And this is a... Uh, 
this is a really difficult thing for the left to get its hands around and its mind around because, um, I mean, if you're a teacher, you know, you know how uh, fractious that process is um, of people learning and freeing themselves of certain, I don't want to say beliefs because I don't see that myself to do it, but certain habits of mind and ways of approaching problems and, 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 and you know, it's, it's hard. Um, and uh, so, uh, but, but the left is not really committed to that project. Um, I mean, I don't want to say that, that's not true. There are parts of the left that I think are, um, but it's not really the parts of the left that are funded by nonprofits and NGOs and, you know, things of that sort. Um, it's, it's, it's the people we see in these Amazon warehouses, you know, that, um, you know, if you imagine the process that went into that of having to talk to people and build a collective consensus that wasn't there before in the face of domination and fear and, um, that is a political, that is a Deweyan political art, right? That is, that is what it means to be a political being. And those people are doing that. And that's, you know, that's democracy. Uh, and I think those are, the, those are the spaces that we have to look at and, and nurture uh, and seed. You know, Corey, I think, ways. you know, I don't think we touched on a 10th of what I had wanted to talk about, but I think that is a wonderful, I think that is a wonderful place to, to end on. I mean, that is where, that is where democracy is happening. It, it, this is the only place democracy can happen. A community that, uh, that already exists coming together to realize the problems in that community that are caused by hierarchy, domination, exploitation, right. and, and, and rectifying those problems. And that is a level of work and a difficulty of conversation that is, uh, un unbelievable, and it is the only way at the same time to achieve uh, any sort of real change, real progress, real democracy. And I, I do think you're absolutely right. There's lots of great people on the left wor working on this. I just, <laughs> I continue to not, I, I do not believe that the average mainstream person who identifies as left or progressive has yeah. has that view, and that is why I gravitated towards anarchism um, yeah. even though i find it nearly indistinguishable from from pragmatism because right. that grassroots bottom up thing i was not finding it in these yeah. so-called left-wing circles that i was traveling in yeah. i am finding a lot of you know if not anarchist people anarchist adjacent people who seem to really really believe and and act in that way and that's where i'm finding my energy right now so in that sense, I think we're yeah. we're on the same page. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Corey. Oh, this thank was, you. Really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Thanks again to Corey for an absolutely scintillating conversation. I cannot stop thinking about it. I cannot stop dreaming of new questions and topics uh, to discuss with Corey. So hopefully we'll be able to find the time to have him back on the show sooner rather than later. You can go to everydayanarchism.com, find out about Anarchism 101 and whatever else I am up to. Um, that's also where you can sign up for my newsletter, which is currently on hiatus, but I hope to have it back soon. There have been some 
trials and tribulations in the Culbertson household lately. Um, and that's also where you can give financially to support the show, but you don't have to give to support the show. You just have to tell a friend, leave a review, or just listen enthusiastically. Uh, actually, speaking of enthusiasm, email me questions or comments. Those just make my day. And so far, I've managed to get back, I believe, to everyone who's emailed me a question or comment. So keep those coming, and eventually I will do some more question episodes on the show if I can get more questions from you. The music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill. <laughs>